Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This is Martin Willis, and I have a guest today on the phone from L.A. Modern, an auction company down in L.A., Peter Lockery. How are you doing, Peter? I'm very well, thank you. You have a special collection coming up in March 2011. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we're very excited about a large group of material that belonged to the late Max Pilevsky, uh, a collector who... Um, was known for his uh, important uh, contemporary art collections that he acquired in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, uh, including uh, uh, Lichtenstein and uh, Judd and wow. uh, Frank Stella. All of these pieces have just come up recently and sold at uh, Christie's for uh, uh, very strong uh, prices, some of them record prices. And he also had a large collection of arts and crafts, which he has donated to the L.A. County Museum uh, of Art. Wow. And uh, we're making their collection one of the best collections of uh, arts and crafts in the world. Wow. Um, and he also had this uh, fascination with the postmodern work of Ettore Satsas. Mm-hmm. And uh, Satsas and his uh, group of designers were a very interesting uh, part of, uh, of, of the design world. They were what I refer to as anti-design, <laughs> um, in that... Um, most of the uh, uh, modernists took a position of rejecting classicism, but also uh, very carefully follow, you know, uh, the, following the rule of uh, form follows function. Um, and uh, Satsas felt that you could take the idea of form following function uh, and the idea of reductionism and minimalism so far that it didn't make sense anymore. It wasn't rational. You could uh, take rational thought uh, to an irrational end. Um, and uh, he thought that uh, it was time that uh, instead of reducing ornament, that maybe you could reintroduce ornament in a, in a different way. And also, uh, instead of uh, the uh, dictation of uh, right angles on, in cabinetry, that he could introduce uh, curves and straight lines uh, in a way that uh, created a whole new vocabulary, in which had be, has become known as postmodern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he was very close friends with Max Pileski, and in fact came and spent a year every, uh, sorry, a month every year uh, at Max's Malibu Beach House until 1983, when they decided they should uh, renovate and completely redesign the interior of of the beach house in Malibu. Um, and what we have in this next auction is all of the designs for the interior of the uh, the Malibu beach house. Wow. Uh, which was one of uh, three great houses in, in Los Angeles um, that Max uh, had uh, built and decorated and filled with really, really wonderful objects. But um, we're very excited about uh, these unique one-off pieces that Sasas designed for uh uh, for that interior. Wow, um, that's going to be a major auction. Yeah, and uh, the wonderful thing is that uh, since you know the bulk of the value of the estate was the contemporary art and the real estate holdings and such, uh, that um, uh, these pieces, uh, by comparison, are 
a much you know lower uh, price point, and the estate um, has let us uh, promote these pieces with no reserve. So these mm. are really going to sell for whatever the market uh, determines that they're worth on that day. Well, wow. and that's a very exciting opportunity for uh, collectors and museum curators and historians. I, I think my own personal view of that. I think those pieces will definitely take care of themselves and don't really need a reserve. That's true. <laughs> I mean, um, it's uh, it, it's usually the case. You know, usually when yeah. we uh, when we put things up with no reserve, there's this uh, feeling that oh, that could be risky. But you know, generally uh, the market will uh, will support good material. Yes, yes. You know, I bought one of his pieces. Uh, Tatsas, um, how do you say his name? Ettore Tatsas. Tatsas. Um, is he is he Spanish or Italian? I can't remember. He's Italian. Italian. He yeah. worked in Los An- in um, America for George Nelson in the mid fifties, and then oh. he went back uh, to Italy. And that mm-hmm. the foundation of design, working in the Nelson office, uh, was a very important part of his um, his career. I see. I bought one of his marble pieces at an auction. A local auction by accident because I really liked the design of it. I had no idea what it was, and I ended up selling it um, for not a lot of a profit um, down the road. I, and I wish I'd hung on to it because um, I saw it come up at auction, um, Richard Wright's auction, for quite a bit of money. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things, you know. Yeah, well, the important thing is you bought what you liked and you had the, had the piece. I'm not ever worried about um, you know selling and or, or regretting uh, selling. Um, a lot of people uh, uh, always are nervous about selling. Well, I don't want to sell; it might be worth more later. But really, mm-hmm. great collections are fluid, and um, that's you know, right. It, that enables you to buy something else and discover something else. And uh, again, you can't make mistakes without taking risks, and you can't, um, yes. you know, have regrets without taking the actions. And yeah. and, and you learn so much from those. Uh, I did because I, you know, I would have never known anything about him. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was very a very unique design. I remember it was like sawtooth uh, marble with uh, white marble with black uh, caps and uh, uh, black base, mm-hmm. and very unique looking. And I saw on your website you have. Oh, a beautiful table. It's like an entryway table or something like that in marble. That must yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal table. It's a 9 or uh, 10 feet long, and uh, it's white uh, Carrera marble with these little black accents. It's very architectural. There's also something kind of you know, vaguely ancient about it you know, in its uh, monumentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you that it took us weeks to figure out a way of getting it out of the house. Because, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> uh, it, um, I would estimate it's probably in the neighborhood of 5,000 pounds, so maybe two and a half tons. Oh, my God. Wow. And, uh, you know, how, how do you pick up, you know, something that is sitting flat on the floor with no feet, no way to get underneath it? Or, you know, it's just we really were puzzled and were scratching our heads for, forever until we talked to... Um, the, uh, the housekeeper who said that she remembered bringing, when they were bringing it in, they brought it in in pieces and built it and assembled it right on the on the spot. So uh, we uh, consulted a, a marble specialist and we very carefully uh, uh, took it apart and uh, it was easier than I expected once you take mm-hmm. uh, took it apart. But and is it is it so? It's reconstructed now, or it will be before your auction? Uh, yeah, we'll be at the preview. We're going to um, have a marble specialist come in and, and put it back together. All the all the pieces uh, mm-hmm. fit together like a puzzle, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a, a special uh, grout that you uh, put in between each piece. So it's really great because I was nervous about you know who do I sell this to because you know how do you ship it as well yes. as 
you know, mm -hmm. how do you, how are we going to move it to the gallery mm -hmm. um, when the same very heavy piece was built in place? Um, but uh, so that's going to be an exciting piece to see what happens with that because it's one of his most important commissions. I mean, sure, just, I I can't think of a more important commission than uh, Max's interior. Did he build that in this country? I don't know if he if he. Uh, you know, I, I'm assuming all these pieces were shipped from Italy, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we do have some beautiful original hand-colored drawings of, of these pieces um, that uh, we found in the Pileski files, and uh, we've nice. had them authenticated by the uh, Satsas uh, studio, mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, those are going to be uh, sold with the, uh, with the with the pieces included with the pieces too, and those those alone. I mean, uh, you know, you know, an original. Uh, drawing hand colored you know, drawing by Satsas has its own inherent value. Sure. Are there other other artists that um, he collected that you'll be selling? Uh, there are a few pieces by uh, Alessandro Mendini, who was an associate of uh, uh, Satsas and was also responsible for uh, you know founding the uh, the Memphis movement. Um, and um, uh, mm -hmm. Carlo Scarpa, um, uh, another a few great Italian. Uh, works of uh, glass. There's lots of Benini glass. Um, oh yeah. And um, there's some uh, great uh, furniture for, uh, from Knoll that uh, Sata selected for the interior mm. uh, that are going to be in the uh, uh, in the auction as well. Now, did you? So you spent some time in the house before was everything was taken out? Did uh, you? Yeah. Uh, uh, over the course of about three weeks, we were uh, oh. down there uh, every every few days. Um, you know, deinstalling pieces. Yeah, major project. And, uh, now, 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 how is uh, your uh, th this auction is what? What is the exact date of that? March. March sixth. March sixth. Two thousand eleven. Okay, and can you explain to our listeners um, how often you have auctions? Uh, well, the short answer is as often as I can. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, we tend to change our dates and. Uh, have auctions based on whether we think the market can uh, uh, can support uh, you know 500 more objects uh, coming into uh, the market. We used to have as many as uh, 10 auctions a year mm -hmm. um, 10, 10 years ago. Uh, we used to have a, an auction every month, uh, but we found now that uh, the right number is between three and four. We're, we're have at least three this year. Probably one in June and one uh, in the fall. Maybe two in the fall. Yeah. Um, are there any particular areas of modern and contemporary? I mean, even things that are just a few years old, if they're by the right name, they have pretty good values. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, some of the most expensive things we've ever sold were only 10 or 15 years old. So there is this um, uh, new area of collecting that's known as contemporary design that has uh, interested a, a wider range of, uh, of buyers at the higher end, people who... Uh, Mm -hmm. Five million dollar paintings don't feel uh, reticent about spending a hundred thousand dollars on a on a rare piece of design. In fact, they think that it's good value. Right, right. Now, are there uh, a lot of the designers are they um, in this country? Are they um, European countries that uh, people really go for? I'm talking about in the contemporary works. Yeah, in the contemporary, it seems like it's a worldwide uh, phenomenon. Uh, Mark Newson, who's an Australian. Designer and um, has seems to have a very strong following, and his pieces have uh, regularly hit the million dollar mark. Oh um, my goodness! And uh, so it's um, um, it's definitely an international following. 
you've got Zaha Hadid, yeah. who, who has been around for a long time, but has uh, only kind of interested a lot of the contemporary collectors in the last five or ten years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's some really fantastic Dutch designers like uh, Theo Remy, who uh, was a uh, really a force in the uh, uh, since the late '80s, but um, it really has been only the last uh, again five or ten years that people have uh, begun looking at his work and realizing that it's uh, going to be a book end to the 20th century. So it's very important to get it now while there while you still can get good pieces. Uh huh. Now, how does a um, say a designer say someone just starts like this year or last year, and they're really good? How does one get noticed, and how does how does it grow into um, something that's auctionable? Well, it's um, similar to uh, fine art. You mm-hmm. can go the dealer route and have uh, dealers uh, at the high end retail level who are constantly looking and searching for young talent. And when they find it and they promote it and they nurture it and they enable a young designer to be creative and build uh, great things uh, by obtaining uh, special commissions and such, that's one way to really uh, move, uh, you know, into the mainstream uh, collecting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's um, the uh, older um, model of the, you know, people like Charles Eames and George Nelson and other designers Mm -hmm. who are going straight to manufacturers and are getting things mass-produced and thereby getting a very wide appeal and then start moving towards more limited and and, uh, rarer pieces. Those are probably the two main ways that a young designer could probably uh, get um, strong recognition quickly. Uh All right. Um, Now, how did you yourself get started in in this? Uh, Well, my brother, who was dealing in 20th century Americana, had a business that he was running out of his garage, uh, buying and selling just really great kind of pop objects from the 1930s to the 1950s, such as uh, bowling balls and uh, colored plastic telephones um, and just the sort of things that you, we all sort of took for granted as just iconic objects of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It really wasn't about design so much as the recognition factor for mostly baby boomers at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, when I came and started helping him, I saw a an increased interest from museum curators and from people who are starting to write uh, seriously about uh, some of these objects and how they pertained to um, the post-war feeling of uh, exuberance and uh, optimism. And so uh, we started looking at some of the more quote-unquote serious objects and and of course uh, anytime something is signed it has a built-in way of you know, getting collectors excited. So mm-hmm. uh, soon enough, we started finding things that were signed by Charles Eames and signed by Gilbert Rohde and signed by, uh, uh, you know, uh, well-known designers and furniture. And uh, we noticed that, that that was a kind of a base to make a market. There are so many things made by Eames that it's, uh, you have this built-in material that you can uh, mm. draw from. Mm-hmm. And because Los Angeles was such a, an enormous post-war boomtown, there was just a tremendous amount of the material out there for a young dealer to uh, to gather and, and to try to put in perspective uh, in a gallery setting. Sure, sure. Now, um, I see on your list of featured artists, uh, George Nakashima, and um, 
always always really uh, like looking at his pieces. Do you get a lot of his um, pieces through your auctions? Yeah, we do. Uh, we've always um, been very aggressive in trying to find Nakashima material, and he kind of goes to what I was just saying about having enough material to satisfy a marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, there's other woodworkers like Sam Maloof and John Nyquist, but uh, they had uh, smaller workshops and made fewer pieces, and they were just as talented and, and made uh, just as exquisitely crafted and fine uh, detailing on their designs. Mm -hmm. But uh, the great thing about Nakashima from a dealer's perspective is there's plenty more out there to find. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a great woodworker who only made 50 pieces in, their, in his life, it's a hard thing to continually promote. When you have someone like Nakashima who made tens of thousands of pieces, it's you know, uh, easier to promote it and promote it and push it because there's going to be more uh, to uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to come uh, onto the market available eventually. Sure, sure. Um, uh, I live up in Northern California, not too far away from an Espinay. Do you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Arthur yeah. Uh, Art Carpenter, also known as Espinay. Yeah, um, is in that same uh, vein of. Of great craftsmen from that uh, from that age group from that period of you know from the late 30s uh, right up to the um, you know to the 80s and um, that perfect kind of 50-year mid-century craftsmanship uh, era is uh, an ideal subset of, uh, of collectibles you know for a lot of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was uh, I was shocked the first time because I had no idea what I was looking at and. Um, what I what I found was a very plain looking headboard out of walnut, and it was signed, and it just looked uh, like I say it was extremely plain. Took it in for the customer with a bunch of other things. Didn't really pay attention to it, and it brought twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, well, um, simplicity is is uh, uh, deceptive. You know, mm -hmm. some things look plain, but uh, there's a great deal of thought and craftsmanship that's. Uh, Put into even the simplest of, uh, of pieces of furniture by Espinay and by Nakashima. Mm -hmm. um, Nakashima was known to uh, contemplate uh, for uh, sometimes years on a single piece of wood before he would actually cut it. I've heard um, that. Uh, something heard. akin to a diamond cutter, a master diamond cutter mm -hmm. who's had 25 or 50 years of experience. When he has a very you know, beautiful stone, he understands that if he cuts it just right, it's going to magnify the you know the, the beauty and uh, you don't set your uh, uh, your cutting tool against the material until you're absolutely sure of what you're doing and what and uh, only a master craftsman you know can see exactly what's going to happen when you start to cut and mm -hmm. uh, Nakashima was that type of you know craftsman he very carefully made preparatory drawings of each piece and the the whole slab of wood and where he was going to make the cuts and why and and uh, a lot of people uh, take that for granted that well he just took the edge of a tree left it raw and cut it cut a, a square and made it and there you go it's a tabletop but actually um, it's so deceptively simple uh, mm -hmm. his work when you really start to deconstruct the process you understand that this is someone who was incredibly knowledgeable about his material very passionate about the craftsmanship and finish. Uh, and that's something that really excites uh, collectors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure. It, you're reminding me of um, of what uh, Michelangelo used to do when he used to look at the marble. 
Oh, exactly. He used to choose his marble so yeah. carefully, and yeah. you know, and then he saw his sculpture inside the marble. Yeah. Well, you have someone like Picasso who understood color, you know, and understood you know uh, form and shape and line, and uh, uh, towards the end of his life, with just a few quick strokes, it, he made it look so easy. Like, oh, this guy, you know, is so natural. Well, he actually mm -hmm. you know had seventy years of, yes. of master work, you know. In his mm -hmm. head, so that a few small strokes at at the end of his career gave you all the same level of you know gravity as the beginning of his career. Well, I, I went to a show of his one time and I saw a drawing he did when he was nine years old, and I just couldn't get over it. Yeah, it no, the mastery or, you know of, of his draftsmanship is uh, it uh, can be very clearly linked to a lot of the great designers like Charles Eames and George Nakashima and Frank Lloyd Wright and other. Uh, great designers of the in the in the furniture mm -hmm. uh, world because they also uh, uh, took great passion in in their uh, abilities to uh, plan ahead and um, carefully map out exactly how this piece was going to look. Now I don't want to get too off track here, but um, you, you mentioned earlier about the simplicity of design, and for some reason it just comes to mind shaker furniture. And yeah. um, the simplicity yet beauty yeah. that the Shaker furniture had. Well, it is very interesting uh, the uh, relationship between Shaker and modern, uh, because uh, the Shakers uh, had a philosophy. They had a design philosophy that um, extraneous decoration was kind of you know putting on airs. It was mm -hmm. rude, and, right. and uh, you know uh, they unknowingly were heralding uh, the heart of the modern movement, which is form follows function. Uh, if they had, uh, they understood that the function of this side chair is simply to hold you up at the dinner table, then the simplest, most economical way of doing that would be very simple straight legs. And if those straight legs need a stretcher bar, a very simple, thin, straight, you know, stretcher uh, to connect the legs underneath to give you the strength. I mean, it really was a very early uh, idea of uh, designing for function. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, eliminating any extraneous uh, detailing. It wasn't so much that they wanted to reject classicism or to uh, reject ornament. It was simply a uh, modest approach mm -hmm. to a straightforward uh, design problem. And that was what uh, Charles Eames, you know, uh, was all about, about simple, straightforward solutions to a design problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. One of the things I, I often ask when I speak to someone like you, how would a novice like to say if one of our listeners um, happens to be listening and they have like a curiosity of uh, getting into collecting modern and mid-century and say 20th century design, what would you say to that person and how to get started in, in learning to co collect the, the right way? My suggestion would be to find something that excites you. I mean, when I saw my first uh, piece of furniture by Charles Eames, I didn't know who Charles Eames was. Uh, I didn't know why I liked this piece, but I understood a very strong visceral reaction that I had that this was a beautiful sculptural object. Now, some people look at, look at the material and don't get that reaction. You have to start with the reaction. You have to start with something that you inherently believe is beautiful because hmm. down the road as you're investing, you need to have the things around you that you love to look at. And mm -hmm. uh, so many people are uh, 
caught up in the investment aspect of this uh, yep. uh, business uh, that uh, they ignore the fact that it's like, yeah, but this is the sort of thing that gives me intense you know, pleasure. I do it. Do I wake up every morning and put on my glasses and look at this piece and say, ah, there it is. I love looking at that piece. Mm-hmm. You know, or is it simply, you know, well, I have a feeling that this is going to be worth more money, uh, you know, next year or five years from now. So I'm going to buy it and wrap it up and put it in, you know, in the uh, in storage and wait. I mean, there's there's no wrong way to get a to get into this business, but I would suggest. Uh, you know, starting with the things that you really love. And sometimes it's just purely from a visual, visceral reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at something that's minimal and think that's beautiful, um, then you can begin to understand, why do I think that's beautiful? Why Is it because these designers consciously rejected, you know, historical precedent, uh, which is what I have come to believe, that now when I look at a piece, I understand, oh, the reason I like that piece is because it, you know, it was like the first piece made out of plastic. Uh, and uh, when plastic was first introduced, someone had to start learning about the inherent properties of this material. And you can't make a, a chair out of plastic the same way you would make it out of wood or the same way you would make it out of steel. Each of these materials has an inherent property. And each of these materials, as they came along to the designers, they a good designer will always uh, begin to understand what's the best way to use this material. Mm-hmm. So I tend to approach all of the things that I buy and collect from that very narrow focus. Um, so really to go back and answer your question, ha- try to find that focus that excites you. Is it uh, a matter of I just like uh, you know things with this really bright color, I want lots of color in my in, in my environment, so Maybe you're going to be more interested in the op and pop movement of the '60s, with mm-hmm. you know pieces by Werner Panton, which are bright red, and, you know, black and bright yellows, and or uh, maybe it's not uh, a color type thing at all. Maybe it's a material mm-hmm. uh, thing like I have, or maybe it's it could be a number of things. But you really need to find that thing that makes you excited and mm-hmm. follow that wherever it leads you. I think that's great advice. Now, okay, say so. So a novice is just starting, and they find something that they're really, really interested, and in, it's along the lines of something that you handle. Where does it go? From, where does that person go from there? As far as getting into the collecting, is auction a really good way to go? And and um, are there other avenues? Or and and also along these same lines, I'm asking: Is there a periodical magazine um, like I think Atomic or anything like that? Is there good reading out there for someone to get started in this? There's fantastic reading out there. There's uh, so much amazing information out there now. When I started in uh, 1986, there was um, nothing mm. uh, being written, con- you know, contemporaneously, you know, with the beginning of this collectible, you know, period. There was only a few books written back in the uh, um, in the period of the 30s, 40s, 50s that were written by some of these same designers, um, and those are always great to read and understand the philosophies of the designs from the period, but today there's a fantastic new magazine called Modern Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, uh, Atomic Ranch and uh, uh, Modernism uh, Magazine and um, a number of other you know, great uh, uh, periodicals. Um, there's also a tremendous number of books. Um, my favorites are by Passion. Um, Tashin has a really long 
list of great books on design um, that are, are so uh, accessible and they have fantastic information, they have fantastic uh, pictures, and um, it's a, a very uh, easy way for a beginning collector to you know, learn more about their interest. Mm-hmm. And, and auction is a, a pretty good way, um, generally speaking, for someone that's getting to start, uh, getting started to at least go and observe what's going on with... Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. a few, uh, uh, years ago when uh, I wanted to buy a house, my father uh, said, don't buy the first house that you, know, that you found. I, I found this one house. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm going to buy this. And he said, wait, go out and look at the market. There's going to be another house around the mm-hmm. corner. Go and educate yourself first before you jump into something, especially if you uh, if you're, tend to jump into something expensive. Um, I think one of the best things to do is start out uh, in, uh, in something that's very affordable, obviously, for, or for you, whatever your price range is. And if there's something, um, like in my case, the work of Charles Eames, which got me very excited 25 years ago, uh, there were uh, inexpensive things, and there was more expensive things, and then there was extremely expensive things, and I was able to start off with these you know, less expensive uh, pieces. Uh, today, I look at those less expensive pieces and the most expensive pieces um, uh, equally. I think that uh, the less expensive pieces are just as good as the most expensive pieces. Um, and uh, for a young uh, collector, uh, my suggestion would be to start with the lower price pieces and work your way up uh, for a number of reasons, not just uh, prevent yourself from making an expensive mistake, but um, you know, start by you know, learning a little bit about the market as you learn about the subject of your, of your passion. Uh, now, auctions are great in, in a lot of ways, uh, but it's not the only great avenue. I mean, uh, I have a lot of clients who are loyal to the auction process, and indeed many that are loyal only to my auction. And while I, I think that's fantastic, I love them, um, I sometimes think it's a mistake if you don't go and buy it, uh, you know, retail shops, if you don't go to outdoor swap meets, if you don't hmm. uh, buy online, if you don't buy at thrift shops and, and estate sales. Each one of these has its own, you know, uh, inherent uh, reason uh, for helping a, a collector. Um, I I know there's a lot of uh, people that make it easy on themselves by just walking into the most expensive gallery and just buying a really great thing that's already vetted. Um, but they uh, are, you know, missing the opportunity of hunting for really great things and finding great opportunities. And I have to admit that some of the my favorite pieces are things that I found in an auction or I found at a swap meet or something that was hidden, a gem, and that I discovered it and, uh, you know, got a really great price on it. Um, and the price factor means, you know, uh, a lot to that piece. I kind of like it more than if I had just walked in and bought, bought it at kind of full price. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of the story, part of the hunt, part of the, the drive for a lot of collectors, you know, is the... Uh, uh, is the story behind the acquisition? Sure, yeah, that I, I agree with that. Now, do, do, does a, a, a novice buyer have to watch out for knockoffs and things like that? Sure, yeah, absolutely. But that comes with the, the learning curve, you know, mm-hmm. of um, of collecting. Uh, you're going to make mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I made tons of mistakes. I'm still making mistakes. Um, and uh, the older I get, and the more knowledgeable I am, the fewer mistakes I make, and the, and the you know the ones that are you know least uh, painful. 
Um, so no collector is ever going to tell you, oh, I was smart. I waited and I knew everything first and I never made a mistake. Huh. That's Trust right. Me, every major collector, the best collectors, you know, have made huge mistakes. Yes. Um, and you can't be worried about that because with the learning curve comes a tremendous amount of knowledge. And uh, sometimes you buy a piece um, and... Uh, that's the only way you're going to learn that lesson is to buy that piece that you shouldn't have bought. Yeah, I heard there's a, a saying in the antique business goes something like, "If you're not if you're not making mistakes, you're not buying." <laughs> yeah, you're not taking enough risks. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And your uh, your uh, website is lamodern.com. Yep, lamodern.com, uh, where information is available on all of our upcoming events and a lot of information on past events. And to go back with what we said about uh, before about periodicals and such, about uh, ways to get good information for a young collector, uh, auction catalogs can be priceless. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of rare or unique or um, you know odd uh, pieces from different designers that don't make their way into a big coffee table book on the designer. Uh, maybe they're not the most iconic or sexiest you know, piece for someone to publish, but um, those pieces wind up getting uh, pictured uh, and cataloged in auction uh, sure, yeah. uh, books, and those can be really great uh, learning material mm -hmm. uh, and uh, very inexpensive. Yeah. You, can, you can buy all of our past catalogs on, on our website as well. That's, that's great advice. What, where do you think this collecting is going? Do you think in another 10 years it'll still be, you know, what's your opinion on the future of uh, modern and contemporary design? I couldn't be more bullish on the future for design. Um, one of the reasons that design has been so popular in the 20th century is because uh, it uh, is accessible and it does serve a very important purpose. Um, and uh, as long as design continues to serve that purpose, it will you know, always be very popular. There will always be people um, uh, building houses and, uh, and apartments where these pieces can be very useful. And um, I also think that, and I've been trying to push this for uh, 20 years, that it's a responsible uh, way of recycling. Uh, <laughs> instead of going out and buying brand new uh, manufactured uh, goods, which uses up you know, global resources, uh, there is plenty of great design and material out there on the market at very reasonable prices. Many of the classic icons that I sell are cheaper than reproductions, hmm. um, which is astonishing to me, which leads me to believe that the market certainly is a long way to catch up. Hmm. Um, and, but it also uh, should send a very strong message to people that this is the responsible thing uh, to do. Buy something vintage, buy something old, reuse it, reupholster it. Uh, these things are durable. They should last many lifetimes. If uh, if cared for, and you get this wonderful added benefit of it, you know, increasing in value. Um, and I, I think that that is going to become more acceptable. More people are going to be more aware of that fact, and that alone is going to help design increase uh, in popularity and, and value. Love it. That's great. All right, Peter. So this is it for us today. Thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, great luck with your auction in March. I hope it goes very well. I think it. Sure will. You'll be making a big splash. Okay, thank you. I'll look forward to it. All right. You take care. This right. is Martin Willis with Peter Lockney, and we're signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
again. While you are on our website, antiqueauctionforum.com, please stop by the forum message board. Click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar and you can join in on a topic, post your own website links, and do a lot more. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show.